This evening I would like to <coughs> speak a little bit about the areas of faith and the area of motivation in the practice. Um, one of the major differences, I think, between the Mahayana and the Theravadan traditions of Buddhism is the emphasis that is placed upon faith and the emphasis that is placed upon motivation. I think probably all of you have heard the many of the stories of yogis and meditators of the past who were left to kind of waste away at the gates to the monastery and go through endless trials and challenges before they were accepted by a teacher. And many of these stories of going through all of these trials and going through all of these challenges, they feature very strongly in the, in the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism. And they are not stories which are concerned only about the past, but this whole approach of asking a person to deepen in motivation before beginning in the practice is, I think, in many, in many parts of Buddhist teaching still very much alive today. I know when I first went to India to um, and wanted to begin practicing meditation, I had a rather Western attitude that learning meditation was a little bit like going into McDonald's or any other kind of fast food restaurant that you would kind of go and put in your order for what you were looking for and somebody would be immediately there with a menu. Um, you know, saying you want to learn this, you want to learn this, and of course. And I was a little bit surprised, actually, to encounter uh, a teacher who really wasn't that, seemingly that interested in teaching me at all, and who, you know, for many, actually for many weeks would just say, no, 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 I'm not interested until finally one day he gave me a box of noodles, which was um, the signal of being accepted as a student. And of course, when I began to practice with this teacher, immediately I thought that once I'd gained admission, you know, that I would be learning tantric practice the next day. And instead, really for many months, I was asked essentially to explore the whole area of reflection, to reflect upon the Dharma, to reflect upon the, the purpose, the under, my understanding of meditation, to reflect upon what the Dharma or meditation was really intended for. And some of the, one of those reflections was, you know, for many for a very long time to reflect simply upon the preciousness of being alive as a human being and what a rare thing that was. 
And of course, intellectually, it's very easy for us to say, of, of course, it, we're very fortunate to be alive as a human being. But to reflect upon it for day after day after, ta- after day, to look at the many ways of being alive in this world, the many ways of being alive and suffering, is, was certainly for me to begin to appreciate what an extraordinary opportunity it is to be alive as a human being and free, to have the luxury of being free, to be able to explore what it means to be awake, what it means to live with compassion. And the analogy that was, was used was to envision a, a, blind, a, blind tor- turtle, a blind tortoise swimming in a vast ocean. And on this vast ocean, there would be one golden ring floating on the surface. And every 10,000 years or so, this blind tortoise would pop its head up to the surface of the ocean. And what would be its chances of putting its head through this golden ring? Very few, actually. And this was meant to be the analogy for understanding how extraordinarily fortunate We were to be alive and to be able to receive and to listen to the Dharma and to practice it in our lives. Another reflection which was used very frequently was to reflect upon the nature and the meaning of compassion and how much of meditation was actually a teaching of compassion, a teaching of how to live in a compassionate way how to live with a heart of compassion. And again, in this reflection, we are asked to consider how we would regard the world and how we would treat the world and how we would wish to care for our world if we were able to see each person, each life in this world at one time having been our mother. Now, for Westerners, this was a little bit complicated, I have to say, because not everybody held their mothers in such high regard. But for an Asian, this was that sense of cultivating the Dharma in order to live in a way in which we treasured the well-being of our life. Now, many of these reflections, which are so extensively used in the Mahayana tradition, The purpose of them is not simply to exercise the mind, you know, not simply to to make more thoughts or more concepts. The purpose of cultivating many of these reflections before beginning in meditation is really to clarify our own motivation for practicing, to clarify what it is that we're seeking for, to clarify our understanding of what of what power this practice essentially holds. The purpose of these reflections is also through that clarifying our intention to deepen our own sense of dedication, of steadfastness, a willingness to learn, and our capacity to persevere. The purpose also of these reflections and this kind of approach to meditation is also to begin to cultivate a, gra- a very vast sense of vision. I know when I began meditation 
practice, and I, I think this is, is true of many people who begin meditation practice, my primary interest certainly was in personal change. You know, what, that, what this was going to do for me. You know, what, what way it was going to bring more happiness or more peace or more calmness to my life. And certainly the whole way of introducing these reflect, reflections was actually intended to open up that sense of vision and to really emphasize and stress that this practice, what we are doing here, we are engaging in a path of peace, engaging in a voyage of discovery, of exploring compassion, exploring sensitivity, exploring what it means to be awake, not simply for my benefit, but really for the liberation, for the peace, for the well-being of all life. And I think it is important, it is important to understand that the more we do deepen in meditation, the more it dissolves these kind of separations between my world and someone else's world. And that to begin meditation with an understanding that this whole practice is in the service of the well-being of all of life, that this whole practice is in the service of the peace of all life, of all of our world. In many ways, it, it changes our approach to our practice, because I do feel, I mean, this is a subject for a whole other talk, but I think especially as Westerners, we can, you know, come into this practice with such strong agendas for ourselves around perfection, around who we should be, that it is very easy actually for our vision of the practice really to seem to be in the service of personal perfection and improvement rather than simply in the service of peace, in the service of well-being. Much of this kind of work that is done through reflection, through exploration, is to cultivate both vision and also a very deep sense of faith and trust in that vision. Faith in our own capacity for liberation to be awake. Faith that just as thousands of people before us have traveled this path, have discovered what it means to be awake, to be at peace, to live with compassion, that those possibilities are equally our possibilities. That this whole possibility of, of depth of understanding, it doesn't belong only to special people, only to saintly people, or only to people who have you know, a particular kind of karma but that each one of us as a human being in this body, in this mind, in this heart, has the capacity to share in the same discoveries, the same revelations, the same liberation as all of those people who have traveled this path before us. Reflection helps us at times to deepen in faith, 
our capacity to be an awake and wise human being. Reflection opens also our sense of vision to understand the ways in which this path is in the service of all beings. In a way, the reflection is a kind of preparing the ground for meditation to cultivate a sense of willingness and eagerness to cultivate a very strong sense of a wholehearted meditation, a wholehearted motivation that we then bring to the practice. Now, in the Theravadan tradition of Buddhism, there is really very little um, emphasis that is given to, you know, prior reflection and prior preparation. And no one is ever asked when they come into a retreat in most meditation centers in the West. No one is ever asked, you know, for any kind of credential, you know. Show us, you know, show me how much faith you have or show me how vast your vision is. It is much more assumed that if we sit and if we are prepared to undertake a retreat like this where we are willing to be present and alone and engage in exploration and meditation, then all the faith that is needed and all the motivation that is needed is going to grow through our own experience. Now, I would like to just look at a little bit at the pros and cons of both of these approaches. Certainly in the Mahayana tradition, when so much attention is given to reflection, to deepening, establishing faith and motivation, I think one of the effects of that is that, you know, there, a lot of doubt is kind of dispelled. A lot of doubt is sort of set aside. You know, that if you manage actually to survive a few months or a few years of reflecting upon hell realms and preciousness of human rebirth, you're going to stick with it, you know. That is, you know, you've already done the hard part. Um, but I think it is also true that many people sort of engaging in that very kind of demanding preparation often feel that, you know, that, that they're just ill-equipped, you know, they'll never make it as a meditator, they'll never make it on the spiritual path, they'll never be good enough. I think in the Theravadan tradition, where, or the tradition of, you know, this, in some ways, this kind of retreat, when there's so much openness, I think there's a great, a great beauty about that openness. But I think in coming into a situation like this, or a situation of any retreat, where there is so much openness that all you're asked to do is just sit down, you know, and see what happens, you need to be prepared to meet the demon of doubt very wisely. You need to be prepared to be aware of the subtlety and the power of doubt which is probably one of the most debilitating and paralyzing of demons that we meet in this journey. I would not like to present faith as something that you perfect 
and then your work with it is done and you never have to look at it again. The whole area of faith, the whole area of our own motivation, our own intention in meditation, is something that calls for an almost constant renewal and reflection. We'd like to say that faith is something that is very fundamental to deepening in meditation practice. Now this word faith, I think, is a very difficult word for many Westerners. You know, if some of you come from a religious background, you know, especially a a rather um, forceful religious background, you might actually have had enough by this point of being told to have faith. You know, for some people from very forceful religious backgrounds as children, you know, to have faith was something that was almost imposed upon them. You know, you may have been told to believe in this and believe in that and to have faith no matter what happened. And it's true in some religious backgrounds, you know, that people ask difficult questions, you know. They ask, you know, why am I suffering? You know, why is the world suffering? And, you know, they're sometimes told, well, you know, have faith. You know, have faith. Someone knows what is going on. And I think that kind of, that kind of answer of, of feeling that we should have faith in something greater than ourselves and something outside of ourselves has often been for many people very confusing and disempowering. And I think it is why for many Westerners they come to meditation and they feel so relieved because they're not told to have blind faith in anything, you know, that in this path you're encouraged to question, encouraged to challenge, encouraged to to probe things, to accept nothing that someone else tells you, no matter how much authority they have or how much power they have without first checking it out for yourself. I think for other people who in the West who really don't come from any kind of religious background, they equally have trouble with the word faith. You know, there's the, sometimes it just doesn't have any meaning for them. What does faith feel like? What does it look like? What does it do? You know, where, where do you find faith? You know, where, where is it, it found? And it often, I think, feels like, you know, faith is something for somebody else's path, but not so much for mine. Now, the way in meditation that we use this word faith, I think, is, is quite specific. And if you have trouble with the word faith, I think it is equally true to consider the word trust. To learn how to have trust in the practice and in ourselves and to learn how to trust in our practice and in ourselves is an incredibly important ingredient in allowing or helping our own path to unfold. 
As I mentioned, one of the major challenges that we meet in this journey is doubt. And it is the quality of trust that is the foundation for courage, for strength, for perseverance. When I use the word trust, I don't necessarily mean to have trust in someone else. Or even to, you know, some people come here and they have no trust in themselves. This is not necessarily a problem. Well, there is another way that I think it is important to develop, that trust is developed. And another way that is accessible to anyone to consider. I would like you to think of trust as a way of being in which you are willing to draw no conclusions about anything at all. Where you are willing to rest in a place of not knowing and to appreciate what an extraordinarily powerful place it can be to rest in a way of being, of drawing no conclusions, of not having answers, of not knowing. There is no, I think there's probably no doubt that even by this point in the retreat, you have experienced how very ready and how very eager the mind is to jump out of a place of unknowing. You know, when you sit and your mind is drawing a lot of conclusions, you know, sometimes these are in the form of, of judgments. You know, I'm like this, I'm, I'm doing well, I'm doing badly, I'm getting better, I'm getting worse, you know. Um, you know, I, I'm terrible at this, I'm good at this, I'm a disaster. When you walk outside, you know, and the mind is so filled with knowing, with knowing. You know, when we walk outside in the garden and acting as a kind of on-duty landscape designer, you know, that's it. You know, flowers are looking good today. They should have planted more lettuce, you know, and that tree ought to be moved over there. And, you know, I've let the weeds get really bad here. And that's a rose. And that's a, a laurel. And that's this. And how eager the mind is to know to know, to have a word, to have a conclusion about so many things. You may have even discovered by this point in the retreat that you have really figured out everybody else on the retreat. You may not have ever spoken to them yet, but you know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are and you know who's the sensitive person and who's a a mindful person and, you know, who's been here before and, you know, who isn't, you know, who isn't a, a sensitive person and how eager the mind is to jump always into this place of knowing, of finding safety and security in knowing. And it is true that we can, you know, some of our knowledge is most definitely useful. Um, a lot of our knowing is, is quite irrelevant to the truth of anything at all. One thing that this compulsion about knowing does 
is that it rather deprives the moment of mystery. You know, there is very little opportunity for a sense of mystery, of magic, of innocence, of unfoldment. This is true also for ourselves. At times it is very difficult for us to open and unfold when we are almost faced with this, this very thick wall of conclusion. Now I think a lot of trust, a lot of trust, is actually a very intuitive sense that there is much to learn that lies beneath the world of conclusion. And learning to have that willingness actually to let go, not to take them so seriously, not to believe in them so strongly, but to learn, you know, for me, the major, one of the most major expressions of trust or faith is having that willingness to, you know, the thoughts arise, the judgments arise, the conclusions arise. Let them be. Just let them be. And come back to that place of just seeing, feeling, hearing, touching, very directly, very immediately. So much of meditation is about learning how to come closer to this place of not knowing. And this is actually one of the greatest expressions of trust. It is, of course, we are not looking here for any kind of blind faith, any kind of blind trust. And it is something far deeper, far more mystical than that. Because there are certainly some, some qualities or some elements of faith that are really not very useful to us at all. You know, any kind of faith that asks us to, to listen to someone else so much that we can't listen to ourselves is not useful. Any element of faith that asks us to look up to someone else rather than to look to ourselves is not useful. Any quality of faith that... Um, resists or resents questioning. None of this is useful here. This is not the quality of trust that we are really seeking for. It is more than devotion that we are looking for in meditation. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, I think there is a very strong encouragement to combine together the fostering of trust and the fostering of clear intention or clear motivation. Now, our intention for doing this practice is probably something that is constantly changing, like a chameleon. And it changes. Our intention for doing this practice changes according to our experience and according to our understanding. Now, I think it is true that for many people, they come to meditation part essentially because they're dissatisfied. You know, if, if you, if everyone was living in their lives and in their world, totally happy, totally at peace, you know, filled with joy and bliss and, and all of those things, um, you might not be here. You might not be here. 
Most people come to meditation two reasons. One reason is is dissatisfaction, a feeling that there is something amiss in their life. It can be very extreme, suffering and pain and conflict, or it can be a kind of lukewarm dissatisfaction of just feeling, you know, like they're just kind of surviving in the world. The other motivation that brings us to meditation is a sense of possibility. You know, not everyone comes to practice because they're suffering. Some people come to meditation very clearly out of a sense of possibility. Their life actually may not be very much involved with suffering or pain or anything, and yet there may be a feeling that there is something greater possible, something more possible, something realizable that hasn't yet been realized. It is sometimes, I mean, it is understandable that when we come to meditation out of dissatisfaction, this is an understandable motivation. We're looking for change. We're looking for things that we don't have. We're looking for a quality of peace or direction or, or vision or calmness or joy that we just don't feel like we have right now. Now, this motivation is understandable, but I think it's very important to understand the way in which this kind of motivation can affect our sense of trust in ourselves. When our motivation is based upon dissatisfaction, our personal imperfections, when our motivation is based upon our personal imperfection or suffering, usually what accompanies that, no matter how soft it is, is that we have an agenda. We have something that we want to realize. You know, so you often find you know, a person who comes into a retreat and they feel, you know, I'm such an angry person. Okay, you say, well, why are you sitting? Why are you sitting? I don't want to be any angry anymore. I want to be loving. A person comes to retreat, they feel, you know, that they're a very uh, defensive person. I want to be open. They may feel they're a very greedy person. I want to be generous. They may feel they're a very confused person. I want to be clear. Okay, now this seems on one level, of course, perfectly understandable. Everyone comes here looking for some form of change. No one comes here looking just to be a little bit more intimately acquainted with, you know, sore knees or sore backs. We anticipate change through doing this practice. That is fine. That is actually a a positive inspiration, a positive expectation. But be aware of the agendas that can get set up because so often then, We are looking in our meditation for signposts. We are on the lookout for particular signposts. And we may actually restrict and enclose or limit what is possible for us in this practice. You know, I would take the example of greed. You know, maybe maybe if someone comes to this retreat and they feel they really want to to let go of greed, you know. And so what happens then? You know, they're always alert, you know. They're, 
they're, you know, wondering whether they should be at the back of the lunch line, you know, and showing how ungreedy they are, or whether they should go to the front of the lunch line so they can confront their greed, you know, and they manage to go a day with only one serving on their plate, and they, oh, I'm doing so well, you know, and then at tea time they forget and they take an extra piece of bread, and oh no, you know, there it is again, I'm so greedy. Well, you know, this... Our meditation may be able to offer something a little bit more than just this constant kind of checking for signs of whether we're slipping or improving in this. And notice, when our meditation, when our motivation is limited by a particular agenda around personal improvement, our faith tends to be very fragile. Notice how that happens. You know, that if you get a good signpost, you know, you have a day where you're very calm, very loving, and very generous. Oh, the faith and the trust and the practice, it's just so wonderful, you know. We just say, oh, you know, I wish I'd done this years ago, you know. You know, it's so good for me to be here, and look how it's changing already. And then, of course, the next day, it can totally fall apart. You know, you can be angry and confused and negative. And what happens to the trust? What happens to the faith? Oh, no, you know, it's a disaster. I can never get anywhere with this. You know, I'll never change. You know, millions of other people in the world have changed their meditation, but not me. You know, it's impossible. You know, it's absolutely impossible. Notice how then our sense of faith is actually dependent upon our experience. Now, is it possible for us to nurture and to foster a quality of trust that is not actually so fragile, that is not dependent upon the contents of our experience? And I would say the answer is yes. And the way to foster a quality of trust that is not dependent upon our judgments, not dependent upon the contents of our experience, is fostering and nurturing the willingness to draw no conclusions. To draw no conclusions. This surely, the willingness to draw no conclusions, surely expresses a very deep inner trust in our own sense of possibility rather than assuming the truth of impossibility. And conclusions only ever speak to us about impossibility. They say, I am. I am. This is who I am. This is the truth of who I am. What this practice does for us, what it offers to us, is that it really shows us how to open. It shows us how to let go. It shows us how to begin again in each moment. How to let go of the thoughts, the judgments, the conclusions, and to return to that place of beginning again. 
which in a way is a real place of innocence. That willingness to begin again is the way in which we learn to trust in ourselves, in our practice, in this moment. It is also, I think, knowing very deeply that you cannot ever measure the worth of a single sitting. You cannot, in this practice, really evaluate progress. You cannot measure the effect upon ourselves or upon our world of dedicating a single sitting, a single walking, to total sensitivity, to being fully present, to being awake. I would like you just to reflect on the possibility of approaching this retreat in a way as if it is truly your first retreat. Of approaching every sitting and every walking in this retreat as if you have never sat and never walked before. That there is no comparison. That there are no conclusions. It seems to me that to begin every sitting, every walking, as if we never sat and never walked before, is to learn to be in this moment without a history, without comparison, without judgment, without evaluation. And surely this is what really allows the present moment to unfold for us, to open for us. Now, it seems to me that every time we come on a retreat, we actually make a journey from what we know to what is unknown for us. Nobody here knows what will happen on this retreat for them. No one can know. We make a journey from what we know to what is unknown for us. It seems to me that we make that same journey every time we sit. When you begin a sitting, you don't actually know what will happen in that sitting. You have no idea. You have no way of knowing. You make the journey from what you know to what is unknown. Every time you begin a walking with clear intention, with the intention to be present, you don't know what will unfold for you, what may touch you, what may happen during that walking. Every time we are willing to let go of our thoughts, our grasping, our, our images, our judgments, every time we are willing to let go of all of these words and props that are always telling us how we know the world, we are also making that journey from what we know to what we don't know. Now, in that journey, that we make all the time in our lives. From knowing to not knowing, there is inevitably some fear, some anxiety, some apprehension. You know, not knowing doesn't promise us any safety. And it is trust in ourselves. It is trusting our practice, which is not separate from ourselves. Trusting our own intention, trust in our willingness to learn that allows us to move through those shadows and passages from knowing to not knowing 
without being overwhelmed by anxiety and by doubt. Now, I would like to speak just briefly about a phenomena that many people, of course, if not most people, encounter on a retreat. The phenomena of the hindrances. Now, some of you have sat here today, you know, and maybe times you felt a little sleepy. Many times you felt a little agitated. You might have felt very annoyed or negative. You might have felt, you know, rather hungry in your mind, you know, wanting, wanting. You might have experienced moments of doubt. Now, these phenomena, these experiences, are what is generally known as the hindrances. Now, if you have sat on retreats before, if you've done retreats in the past, you may have this idea that the hindrances are something that happens to everybody at the beginning of retreat. You know, that they're just part of doing retreats. That you go through the hindrances, and after three days, the hindrances go away. And it's kind of assumed that the hindrances are, are kind of like um, just something you just have to go through at the beginning of a retreat before your retreat starts to happen. Well, one piece of information I would like to offer you is that not everybody has the hindrances, and it's not uh, inevitable that you are always going to have the hindrances when you start a retreat. I would say that the smallest part of the hindrances has something to do with making a transition from a life that's busy and, and occupied to a life of being still. The smallest part of the hindrances. The largest reason that the hindrances arise at the beginning of retreats is about control and about not knowing. You know, the hindrances serve to dull everything. They blanket everything. And it's the kind of way in which the sense of self protects itself. You know, it throws up all these interesting mind or uninteresting mind states to cope with. Now, usually the phenomena that happens is that people assume you have the hindrances for three days and then you've gone through them. But often what has happened is that in that three days that the hindrances are here, the eye actually learns how to be more in control in this environment. You know, it learns how to be more secure here. You know, you've got your little territory, you know, your little Zafu and Zavatan or your chair, you know, you've got your place in your room, you know the schedule, you know you're going to get fed, this is very important, you know, you know that there's enough sleep going to be available, you know nobody's going to beat you. The eye suddenly feels in control again, and so the hindrances disappear. And often people feel, oh, good, you know, that's over with. Well, be aware. It is no surprise that every time in meditation that we come up upon some edge where we're asked to let go or where something is happening that we're not so familiar with or that feels not, not so known to us, the hindrances arise again. Suddenly we find ourselves all sleepy or filled with doubt. And it is really the way in which the, the sense of self is operating to protect itself. Now, when we are in these moments, these edges of meeting what we don't know, of meeting what is not familiar to us, this is where the area of trust and the area of clear intention or motivation is so important for us. Because it's so easy to draw so many conclusions in those moments. 
you know, I'm, I'm like this, I'm like that, I'll always be like this. It is so important to have that trust and that motivation to draw no conclusions, to let these experiences, these, these kind of appearances of fear, of anxiety, just move through us and to be steady, to be present and to be steady, to be willing to learn from these moments rather than turning these moments into enemies or obstacles that we have to overcome. These moments when we make that transition from knowing to not knowing, these moments when we meet our own apprehensions and fears, these are often the moments that hold the greatest learning for us. These are the moments that ask us to open, to trust in our own sense of possibility, to trust in our own capacity to learn, to trust in our own capacity to be awake, and to know that in that trust, our meditation is in the service not only of our well-being, but our meditation is in the service of the well-being of all of life and the peace and the integrity and the freedom of all of life. May all beings live with trust. May all beings live with balance. May all beings live with vision. We could have a couple of moments quietly together and then there'll be the walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.